All right. Thanks, Tom. And thank you, guys. It's good to be with you again. Uh, truly, no pastor speak here. It's an encouragement, the partnership that we have. It's been the topic of numerous elder meetings, like our partnership with the Grace Church. It's rare, actually, in Christendom to have two churches put skin in the game together and do something like a fellows program or feel comfortable with swap and pulpit. I, I trust Luke implicitly. So it's good to be with you guys for sure. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dig into Scripture. Dear Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. I thank you for the chance to be here with this church family. And we're all one body. And so I pray for that kind of unity to continue to flourish. And I pray that it can include other churches as well. And thank you for the way Luke has encouraged me. And um, I pray that as churches that we can utilize our resources together and do things that are bigger than any one church can do. So we ask for that kind of partnership and we ask that your Holy Spirit would move now in this time and show us your will and grow us, grow us as a people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're in the book of Acts 21. I'll give you a second. I don't know if you have Bibles, but we have, as a church, been working through the book of Acts for about a year. And it largely follows the life of Paul. You guys know this. 21, you're now moving into the latter part of Paul's life. And he's kind of putting the finishing touches on his life. But the whole book... Sh- bears the shape of how Paul did his work, his gospel work, and that was with credible contrast. Let's dig in. Next slide. Here's a map. And so Paul's just concluded his third missionary journey. And now he's going to head back to Jerusalem to the mothership and meet with the first church in the city council, or the church council. And here's what the meeting consists of. It's uh, 21 verse 17. Here's what it says. When we, so the author Luke is, is with this group, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things God had done along with the Gentiles, among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So all good so far. Many Gentiles are hearing about Christ and becoming Christians. But there's trouble ahead. And they, the council, said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all jealous for the law, or zealous for the law. Probably jealous too. And they have been told about you and, and that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They, the Jewish Christians, will certainly hear that you have come. So one of the things I love about the Bible is the real, accurate, and f- true picture it shows of the people in the Bible. It's not a puff piece. It shows them realistically grappling for wisdom and sometimes failing. And so here you see the church context is the church in Jerusalem It's probably about 10,000 people. It's a pretty good size. But a big chunk of those people are Jewish Christians who are really, really passionate about keeping the Jewish customs. And they're hearing gossip that Paul is actually working against the ways of Moses, which is a smear. Paul never challenges Old Testament law-keeping unless it becomes a rival or a replacement for faith in Christ. Maybe this example helps. Next picture. So this guy is pulling a rickshaw. Pretty good picture of a labor of love, too, huh? So he's pulling a rickshaw. Now, the rickshaw was invented in the 17th century. It had about 300 years before the car. Next photo. So it's true that the rickshaw bears some resemblance to the car. Both have wheels. Both have a power source for propulsion. 
But the car isn't contained in the rickshaw. It actually fulfills the rickshaw, just like Christianity and Judaism. Christianity isn't contained by Judaism. It fulfills it. So they're not equivalents. They bear some resemblance, but they're not equivalents. And that's true. See, the church council is trying to grapple with this idea. How do we show that we're still plenty of Jewish? And so they're, they're going to come up with a camouflage plan. But they're not equivalents, and you can't make them equivalents. Right? Just like the rickshaw. I mean, different engine, right? In the rickshaw and in the Judaism of the first century, the idea was, by your own moral effort, if you just push hard enough you can begin in right standing with God. But the engine of the way of Christ that Paul is teaching is very different. It's saying this, by the grace of God, not by your own moral effort, the work Jesus did on the cross, if you entrust your life to him, that makes you whole. And then your moral effort, that comes after grace, not instead of it. It's a very different concept. And what the church is trying to do is say, now nah, the church is still pretty much Jewish. We're still plenty rickshaw. And their idea now is their first century problem solving is, what do we do? Now that people have heard you've come and you are a Moses hater. There's not a lot of nuance in that critique, but it fits better on a t-shirt or a toga. Moses hater. So that's really the crux of this. Is the church Judaism? And their plan is camouflage. Let's look at it. Verse 23. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. Then Paul took the men the next day. He purified himself along with them. And he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So the purity vow was a ritual in which men would shave their heads and then offer those gobs of hair at the temple as devotion to God. And then there'd be a lamb offering and a drink offering and a grain offering. So it's real expensive. The idea is that Paul would sponsor these purity vows as a way to show, I'm still really rickshaw. Right? That's the idea. But and I'm not trying to critique the first century church, but their plan fails because God's intention isn't to conceal the gospel, but actually to contrast it as very, very different. So everything they're planning and hatching is going to come to nothing. And here's what happens. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And then what happens is there's a mob that plans to execute Paul, but the Roman commander hears of it, sends his soldiers, they arrest Paul, and they bring him into the barracks or the jail, but just before he asked permission to address the crowd, and he's given it. And now in these next lines, you should discern, because it's, it's revealed pretty clearly, this is Paul's MO. This is how he does gospel mission. He does credible contrasting. He's about to do it. Credible contrasting. Here's what happens. He says to the crowd, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. 
And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So Paul has credibility with this audience. He establishes right away. I'm from the same city. I speak the same language. I was educated by a famous rabbi. You know him, Gamaliel. Also, I am zealous for religion, just like you are. A lot of credibility. And the truth is, if Paul's story stopped right here, he'd be a hero, right? He's the darling of this group if his story stops here. Here's why. He says, verse 4, I persecuted the way of Christ to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in chains to Jerusalem to be punished. See, before meeting Christ, Paul was willing to torture and punish anyone he thought who was polluting the way of Judaism. So that's what, that's what he was doing. That's why he was their darling. But something changes. And now the contrasting. So you should hear a low rumbling because there's something about to change that's going to make him from a star to a villain. And he's purposely now outing himself as a follower of Christ, which in a crowd of crazies is probably not good advice. But he's going to go for it. And here's why. Verse 6. But as I was on the way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, cracked the sky. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Meeting Jesus, it changed everything. That's what changes everything. Meeting Jesus on the road right there. He became real, and he swapped out his rickshaw for a new engine, a new power that can actually complete life. Christ, Christ, Christ. That changes Paul for sure. It's his righteousness. Next slide. So this is credible contrasting. You're going to see this all the time in Scripture. It's really from day one, basic gospel outreach. Apostle Peter writes the same thing. Live such good lives among the non-believers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's credibility. Live such good lives. But then he follows it up in the next chapter with contrast. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. That assumes you have a hope that's different, right? So credible contrast. From day one, that's just the shape of gospel outreach. Credible contrast. Now you might be saying, like I, man, I am no evangelist. I am not. I'm not. I know Luke isn't either. Most pastors aren't, actually. We don't do what you think we do. We're not like always seeing people or like gospel tracks pop out of our hands like Spider-Man's webs. It's not how it works. I'm afraid of people. I like to stay in my own lane. Uh, I spend actually almost all my time with Christians because that's the nature of the work I do. I have very little contact with non-Christians. And so I'm not an evangelist and maybe you aren't either and you don't feel that way. And it's good to know who we are, right? That's the first step. Who am I? But saying I'm not an evangelist can be kind of like saying I'm not a morning person. That might be true, but it doesn't section us off from all morning activities, right? Every Christian at some point needs to bear the gospel with credible contrasting. 
And you need both those things to happen. They're a paradox, but they both have to ride in the same car that's your life. Credible contrasting. Because if you have one without the other, it does not marry well. Let's look at one. So let's say you have high contrast but low credibility. It looks like this. Telemarketer is going to call me. And first of all, they're going to butcher my last name. That's how I know they're a telemarketer. They're going to say like, something like this. Mr. Grotz? Huh? Whatever you're doing and whatever you're investing in, you rethink it. Because I have a plan for you in the oil futures market. See, what that is is high contrast. Whatever you're investing in, nah, invest in this. High contrast, but almost no credibility. I don't know this guy. I don't trust this guy. That's contrast, no credibility. And it rings foreign and hollow. It always does. High contrast, low credibility. But the same is true with the opposite. What if you have high credibility? People trust you, they know you, but your life in Christ is hidden. You have high contrast, or high credibility, low contrast. You need both those things. Both those things marry well. That's how Paul does it. That's how Peter does it. That's how every follower of Christ who does it, does it. Credible contrast. And that's going to look sometimes large scale, sometimes small scale. But small scale matters too. But sometimes it's large scale. Next slide. When I was a youth pastor, I used to take kids to the big college in our area, which was North Dakota State University. Yeah? And it was a big school, good school, and it also had a worship service led by a campus ministry that had a worship service on Thursday nights for about 600 students. Great. So we take students there. And I remember one time I took students there. And I'd been to lots of college worship services. And this one was boilerplate, real typical. So worship band, real loud. College pastor, real hip. Uh, message about trusting Christ, real applicable. Closing song, real predictable. But then just before the closing song, something different happened where this guy, his name is Luke, got up, went to the front, and then he addressed the group before they were dismissed. And he said this, I wrote it down. Some of you know me, and some maybe not. My name is Luke, and after being deployed to Afghanistan last year, I began to have what they call petite mall seizures. Not a big deal at first, more annoying than anything else, but in time they became grand mall seizures. Like you think of with all the convulsing and flopping around. So last month I went in for an MRI and it revealed that I have an inoperable brain tumor. And unless there's a miracle, I won't be here next time, this time next year. Now the power of that statement was tangible. You could feel it falling on the crowd like a sheet of ice. Everyone put their phones down, which is remarkable in that group at that age, right? Like, Oh, because that's what adversity does. It creates a credible platform. This kid was incredibly credible at that moment with what he said right there. And then he said this next part. And, you know, to, to be honest, as I heard it, I thought this, man, maybe this isn't a good idea. I mean, what pastor, the one that was in charge, thought this was a good idea to take this suffering and bring it public? Maybe it's not a good look for God. You know how critics think. What kind of good God would let this nice kid, even a patriot, get cancer? Maybe not a good look for God. But the truth is, God doesn't need a PR firm to manage his image. All he asks is those who have his hope not hide it. And live authentically. And sometimes, when there's opportunity, 
out yourself as a follower of Christ. That's all he ever asks. Just out yourself. And that's what he did. And what a mature statement for this kid to make. And what a maturing statement for those kids to hear. And then he said this. If God doesn't heal me, then I'll be with Jesus next year, which is amazing. And if he does heal me, I'll be with you all next year, which is okay. Either way, God is good and he's to be praised. Boom. That's credible contrast. Right? They needed to hear. They needed to hear this. You know what? Experiencing the love and forgiveness of God is bigger than the brokenness of this world. It's bigger. It's more important. We're all going to die. We all have untimely deaths. Don't we? But there is the reality of knowing Christ in relationship to experience the grace of God that makes you whole and takes your place and decenters you on the throne of your life and gives you something bigger than you to worship and truer. That's just bigger. And his statement made that clear. Credible contrast. That's how it works. And the truth is, most of us will never write that big testimony check that this kid wrote. Ours are smaller deposits of faith, kind of regular Joe stuff, but that, it still matters. At whatever scale God gives us, whatever ground he plants us to say, this is credible contrast. We need both. Next slide. There's an author, Alan Noble, who wrote this book called Disruptive Witness. His contention is this. Because Christianity, our Christianity, now lives in a marketplace of ideas all vying for supremacy. A hundred years ago, the biblical worldview was supreme. Here, even if people didn't live by it, they knew it, right? They knew it. My grandfather was a minister 75 years ago. He's the king of the community, absolute king of that community. Most educated, most influential person in the community. Right now, I have very little influence in our community. I'm usually looked at with some suspicion. Right? I'm definitely not getting the pastoral discount at the car dealership for sure. <laughs> so the truth is, now that Christianity is just one idea in a marketplace of ideas, it's tempting for Christians to focus on contesting for their beliefs rather than really focusing on practicing them well, which creates credibility. Right? The idea of forgiving your enemy or loving your neighbor well, those are ideas you don't have to contest for. They're practices you have to hone. And that's credible contrast. And so as a people, we're incredibly encouraged by Grace Church trying to do this in Basalt as we try to do this in Glenwood. It's not complicated. It doesn't need to be. Sharing Christ isn't. It's just thinking about where you're credible and then outing yourself as a glad follower of Christ when there's an opportunity that makes sense. It's not complicated. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't need a course on evangelism. You just have to think, where am I credible? And where is God outing me to be a glad follower and not hide my hope? It's powerful when it happens. The truth is you have way more influence than you think you do. Because humans, we love by proximity. We care by proximity. 400 people can die in a plane crash over the Atlantic, and we think it's sad. Five kids die in a bus accident in our town. We don't think it's sad. It's tragic because in some sense, those kids belong to us. The people who know you but don't yet know Christ, they care for you. You have influence with them. You do. You just, that's how humans work. 
when you're credible, and then, and then you're willing to be a weirdo for the one thing that matters. In all these other ways, you're like saying, credible, saying, credible, saying, credible. And then you're like, Jesus, I'll be a weirdo for Jesus. I'll be outed for Jesus because he's the good news, the good news that makes me whole. He's the engine that makes me whole. So for this, gladly a weirdo. In every other area, I'm not going to spend my chips that way. That's small game. So here's an example of how this looks, just to give us one before we get into communion. So we had Christmas Eve service just like you guys did. And so we pass out invites. As a family, here's how we think through this. We think, where are we already credible with non-Christians? So one place is the hot springs pool. I'm a regular there. Three, four times a week I swim. I know all the workers. I've been swimming there for five years. I've developed relationships that are credible. I know their names. I ask, well, how's that ankle doing? You know, or like, how's your sister? Just showing up, just being credible. I've never passed out a track. I don't do the five points of evangelism explosion, none of that stuff. Just getting to know them, being credible. And then we put together nice little gift baskets for them for Christmas with chocolate chip cookies and beef jerky, salt and sweet. That's a nice credible combination, isn't it? And then we put in an invite. And then we put in a note inviting them to the Christmas Eve service because that's the contrast. When you invite somebody to a gospel gathering, what you're saying is, I know you don't have any plans to go here, but I'm inviting you, contrast, to come. And consider the historic reason for Christmas. I'm credible, but I'll be a weirdo for this because it's the only thing I'm willing to be a weirdo for because it's the one thing that's changed me. It's the one thing that will matter. After politics and every other thing that doesn't matter fades away. That's what matters. So we haven't figured it all out. It's just one little area we're working on. Not hiding our hope. And one sometimes just saying, hey, I know you're not doing this. I I think you should join us. Just join us, man. Check it out. If God's working, he can move the big rocks. So let's spend some time as Tom gets ready to lead us in communion and think, for, think about for this year, 2024, what does credible contrast look like in whatever scale God gives you? And we're proud and happy to do it along with you as a church. Thanks.